I went into Roots Cafe the other day and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well... Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Hmm. But mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of recovery and addiction. So I usually say those in the opposite order, addiction and recovery. It's interesting. I just looked up at the uh, name of my guest on my computer right now which today I have a guest with me from Recovery Centers of America. So that's why I think recovery came out of my mouth even before addiction did. And Matt Daly is someone who I met when he called me about referrals for Recovery Center of America and what they could do for me in the area of Portland, Maine, where I live and work. And as the title suggests, Recovery Centers of America are more than just one state alone. So Matt, who I talked to, also comes into his job with the recovery centers through his own addiction and recovery. So here on Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, we really enjoy doing a vast array of interviews from people that are in recovery and people who are experts in the field and people who are trying to maintain a recovery lifestyle and people who are in the field who are also in recovery themselves, which seems to make up a large portion of both our guests and people in the field in general. So Matt, Welcome. Hey, Nancy. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's great that you flipped, that you flipped the words around because like, so I, I, uh, I orient my life first and primarily around recovery. I rarely think of addiction um, at this point in my life. I mean, it's, it's how I got to where I am, but my primary center of my of my life is um is in recovery 
addiction was a addiction was a part of that. But I don't think I don't think like I did when I was active. Oh, thank um, goodness. And and at that <laughs> and at the and in that state of mind, um, you know, addiction was everything in my life. But I think, you know, recovery, recovery is this is the central is the central point. And I think that's the point of that's the point of this. Right. We have to if we want to get better, we want to change. Our lives have to kind of be built around recovery as the foundational point. Yeah, I I have so many responses to that. The The last one in my mind was about how. I often don't even think of it as recovery. Like I don't want to recover the life I had before I came into a lifestyle free from all addictive substances. I think of it myself as a life of discovery. Like I discover who I am without the addiction to substance. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, in AA, we say recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body or something like that. I'm probably misquoting it. Um, but to recover the life I had before, it's, yeah, I mean, early on, the first time I tried to get sober, that that was a big part of it for me as I wanted so desperately to get back to this life that I had built and I didn't have any insight around the severity of my problem in the first place, let alone have insight around the fact that all of my decisions and this life that I had built, which was dysfunctional and unmanageable, um, all those decisions were made by somebody who was spiritually sick, somebody who was uh, in active addiction, and that uh, I was identifying so much with a character and a life and all of these superficial elements that I had brought into it, whether it be a career that I had based around a fear-based decisions, uh, relationships that wasn't, you know, wasn't healthy, friendships that weren't healthy. All of the components of my life were things that I needed to let go, ultimately. But the first time I tried to get sober or thought I was trying to get sober, they weren't things that I was willing to consider letting go of. And they were... Uh, there were things that I was rushing back to. The first time that I made the attempt to be sober was after watching a movie looking for Mr. Goodbar. I've never seen that. Well, it, it's probably, I don't remember how old you are, Matt. I'm 66, so it was probably before your time. It was a movie with Diane Keaton played the role of a special ed teacher by day and bar hopping hussy if you want to say at night you sure know, okay <laughs> went out picked up men and went home with them and really that was what my life was like in my early 20s and I was working in special ed and and I would go out to the bars especially on Tuesday evening for some reason in Portland Maine that was a big night out and I saw in the movie, and I've said this before on this show, the spoiler alert, she gets cut up into a million pieces um, by a psychopathic date, you know? Um, oh, and, and I thought, oh my God, that could happen to me. Like I had no wisdom 
never mind being in my 20s, just no, no thought to who I was going home with. Uh, you know, it's before even the AIDS pandemic, you know, people weren't careful. And, um, but I wasn't even sane about it. And that's what I heard when you said everything was dysfunctional and unmanageable and you didn't even have the insight. I had no idea. Was there a specific experience that triggered your first attempt to get sober? Um, well, yeah, I guess so. I had been, I had been, um, kind of, I'd been going to detox on a fairly, fairly regular basis, uh, for, for heroin withdrawal. And, um, you know, the first time I went to detox for that, my, my, my thinking was that, all right, well, my problem is that I, I'm getting sick. As soon as I get detoxed, I get back to baseline. I'll, I'll be able to have however many years of manageable use before this happens again. And now I know better so that, that that's definitely not going to happen. I can manage this. I just, I just, I just got myself into a, into a position where I had overdone it. I ran out of money. Wasn't going to happen again. And I didn't need to do anything else after that. Uh, yeah, it didn't work out at all. I kept going to detoxes and over the course of a couple of years, um, my mother had somehow found out about a treatment center and reached out to them. And I started, uh, getting phone calls from this, from the admissions people at this treatment center. And they were they were asking me about myself and uh, I was, I was interviewing them uh, because I didn't believe that they could help me. I was, you know, I didn't want to go and I wasn't going to go. Um, but they kept calling me and I kept blowing them off. Because at that time, one of the criteria was that I had to stay sober for three days before I could show up to treatment. And there was no way that that was going to happen anyway. Um, but during this time, I had also been hospitalized um, with liver failure uh, and had to go to the uh, spend time in like the ICU at Beth De Israel Deaconess and um, other hospitals. And they had always told me, you know, you, you can never drink again you can't use drugs and when I would leave the hospital the first time I left the hospital in that situation uh, my parents picked me up and they took me back to their house after being in the ICU for a couple of weeks with incredibly jaundice bruises all over me you know my blood's not clotting all of this bad stuff is going on with my body and the doctors told me if I ever drink again I'm gonna die but in my my state of mind is like that was so unpleasant. And the, you know, the second I walked through that, the door of my mother's garage, I ran right in and grabbed like a bottle of her wine and started pounding it right in front of her terrified her. So um, that's like the kind of, that's like the kind of 
drug addict and alcoholic I was, I, I would use everything all the time. And what happened was um, that ultimately brought me into actual treatment. One day I was going to pick up heroin down in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and I, uh, I got it and I drew it up into, into the syringe. And this was, this was 2014. So I, you know, I'm pretty sure this is one of my first um, experiences with fentanyl. I noticed that what I was seeing looked a lot paler than what I was used to see. Seeing, I used it. I got, you know, I mean, it was in my car. I got uh, on the road on Route 3A in the Pine Hills in Plymouth, and I ended up going out behind the wheel. And you know, the airbag woke me up. I wrapped my car around a tree, and I was brought to the hospital. I AMA'd out of the hospital that day. I ended up back at my house with my wife and I didn't have any of my drugs that I had bought. I didn't have a car um, anymore because I had wrecked it and I started pounding vodka and really quickly put myself into another dangerous situation with my liver and was hospitalized again. This time I was at Beth Israel in Plymouth, Massachusetts and they kept me sedated for a few days there. And when I woke up, the doctor told me, Matt, your family wants to send you to treatment if they don't. And we think you should go to treatment. If they don't send you to treat, if you don't accept treatment, they're going to section you. And if for whatever reason they don't section you, I'm going to section you. And a section is something that they have in Massachusetts. It's called a section 35. And at that time, um, what happened was you would get, uh, well, what happened to me was I ended up getting section two, uh, to a facility in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Um, you know, cause I had told the doctor when he told me that I had told him, I said, you know, fuck that treatment center and fuck you. And I went and I went to sleep. And when I woke up, my pants were gone. My wallet was gone. My phone was gone. So I called the police in Plymouth from the hospital phone. And I told them, this is Matt Daly at Jordan Hospital. And I've been robbed. The hospital is called Jordan Hospital at that time. They told me, you know, Matt, it's all right. Everything's going to be fine. Sit tight. We'll have someone over there to help you. So I said, okay. You know, and I went back to sleep. And when I woke up, there was an officer there, but he had me cuffed to my bed and he took me across the street to the court to be sectioned to the old colony corrections center at Bridgewater, where I spent 30 days and developed the willingness to go to an actual treatment center. And, uh, you know, but that willingness just came from the fact that I, I couldn't go home. Everyone was mad at me. And I, I didn't want to stay at Bridgewater for, for, for potentially 90 days. So that's, that's like, that's kind of where I was at. Like I didn't, I didn't want to go to treatment at all the first time. And it sounds so not only that you didn't want to, but you resisted it with everything you could in oh, yeah. handcuffed and <laughs> your rebellion just doesn't count anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, you know, I was in a pretty pathetic state. I was, I was in the, like the, I guess it's the infirmary unit of the, of that facility for 
a long time um, just because I was so, so sick um, in a, in a serious kind of way. You know, I, w- I wasn't just dope sick. I was having serious like liver problems as well. So they had to keep All me. All kinds of physical problems. At that yeah. Point. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a saying, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, that you can get off at any floor. You don't have to ride the elevator all the way to the bottom. And it sounds like you really did ride it just about to the base level. I tried. I tried my best. And what happened What happened was, though, I, I went to treatment and the treatment center I went to, um, they only they only promised, they only if you agree, if you went to treatment there, they only guaranteed you two weeks. And unless you were buying into it, they would send you home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for the first two weeks of my, of my time there, I was pretty, um, uncooperative. I would, you know, kind of just barely participate. I was, I wasn't buying in and they had to have, you know, my, my counselor there, um, they called them a contact, was, uh, took me into, took me aside and, you know, kind of had a come to Jesus conversation with me. Like, your parents aren't going to let you go home to their house. Your wife isn't going to let you go to home to that house. Um, it's December and you're in New Hampshire. Like, are you going to do this or what? And so then, I said, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take a third step. Um, so I took a, I took a third step there and started writing a fourth step. And um, they started talking about going to sober living. And I went to sober living, which I didn't want to do. had a very structured sober house. And it wasn't really until, I don't know, I had been there for a couple of months that uh, I started seeing people having and experience and changing. And I decided to kind of get in, you know, somewhat invested in it, but so that wanted some of those changes for yourself. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I saw that it worked. It didn't work for me that time. I ended up relapsing and I ended up relapsing several times after that, but I had seen something that I couldn't unsee as far as recovery. And I, I, and using was never going to be the same for me again. Uh, I really love the way you just said that, Matt, too, that I saw something I couldn't unsee. That and also the amount of impact on your wife and mother. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were other people, too, uh, of just what your addiction was doing to the people around you, in addition to coming to that state of surrender yourself. You mentioned uh, taking the third and fourth step in rehab, and I'm aware that some of our listeners won't have any idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Do you want a a minute's description to what that means? So a, a third step is... In AA is where we turn our will and the lot in our lives over to the care of God as we understand him or it. And it's what we what we did is we say a prayer that's something like, uh, God, I turn my will and my life over to you to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the burden of self 
and take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And a lot of people at the treatment center that I was at did this. And, you know, you kneel down, you hold hands, you say this prayer. And for me, that's all it was. For me, that's all it was. And I've done this several times. And many of those times, that was all it was. People would walk away from just doing that and be talking about how they had this huge experience. I didn't have a huge experience. The last time I did a third step prayer, I did have an experience because for whatever reason, the woman that was doing it with, with us was crying and she worked there and she had been, you know, she, she'd done these a million times with a million different groups of people. And I don't know what was on her mind that day um, or what she was experiencing, but uh, you know, something stood out to me that time. Um, and that's the last time I formally took a third step. That is a prayer that I use in my life daily, though, um, to try to orient myself. The, the fourth step is, is an inventory, um, and that's kind of a complicated writing assignment where we examine ourselves, our, our, firstly, our resentments, um, then our fears, and then our conduct um, around our you know, sexuality sexual conduct as well as just ways we might use our sexuality or our charm or whatever it is to manipulate people and how we act around that sort of stuff it can be a very intimidating process if we go you know if you tell someone exactly what it entails before they start what i always find is the best way to to do a fourth step or to help someone with a fourth step is to just tell them the part that they're going to be doing, like, Hey, you're going to be making a list. Don't worry about it. Just make the list, you know? And then, and then if they, cause if they, if you think too far ahead on one of the, on a fourth step, you, if you're anything like me, you're just going to decide it's something that I'm not doing. It's, it's a lot. And in fact, I know a lot of people that have stayed away from 12-step recovery entirely because of the God thing, you know, Mm -hmm. um, not something they are willing or interested in exploring. The way it was presented to me early on was that everything I needed in a higher power, uh, which was the common reference in AA to God or, you know, it's yep. something that's greater than yourself is what's needed. And the way I was taught about that is that everything I needed in a higher power was exactly what I sought in drugs and alcohol that I, you know, wake up in the morning thinking about drugs. I'd be on my knees sick, you know, <laughs> right. I'd have surrendered to drugs whenever there was a problem in my life. It's the first thing I thought about. And the first thing I sought were drugs, you know, so I needed to have a higher power on my mind. First thing in the morning, I needed to, you know, give my life over to that power, which I was doing with drugs, but needed to do now with a higher power that was not drugs or alcohol. And, um, 
and to turn to that source of power when I needed help uh, whenever I was confronting a problem. So, you know, I remember when my car broke down one time and I was on my way to do a home visit with a client and, um, and I didn't call AAA, you know, I, I went to seek out my drug of choice <laughs> as if that would help the uh, car get fixed. But I called and canceled the client. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's an orientation and an awareness of something greater than ourselves. And um, that for and this is for me, it's that for is that the, the, the world doesn't exist to serve me, my my feelings, my comfort, my enjoyment of whatever I happen to be experiencing at any given point isn't the most important thing in the world. So if there's if there is a power greater than me and I'm orienting myself to a higher purpose, then how does that behavior look? And for me, it looks like trying to be of ultimate use to others and, you know, where I can, and most often just reminding myself of that. Um, and that's like, honestly, that's what, that's, that's what 99% of my day isn't spent being of ultimate use to others. It's, it's more often reminding myself that I'm, I'm, I, I have to be, I have to be concentrating on getting myself in the position where I can be of service, where I can be useful, you know? I'm not going to be of any use to anyone if all I'm doing is thinking about myself. All I'm doing is thinking about the things I wish I had um, or how I wish I was doing something different or, you know, how I'm bored, how I'm hungry, how my car is not good enough. You know, all of the negative stuff. Um, I can't afford to indulge in that. And it doesn't put me in a position where I'm going to be very very useful to help anyone else because all i'm doing is thinking of myself and it's you know aa uses terms that people find harsh they say that selfishness and self-centeredness seem to be the root of our problems and for me that's that's certainly true like all of all of that stuff right all of that negative thinking is selfish and self-centered but when the first time I heard someone describe the describe it in those terms, I I didn't understand because to me a self centered person was a person who thinks that they're the cat's ass. You know what I mean? A self centered person is, is someone that's self satisfied, thinks they're God's gift. And I was sitting there thinking like, I hate myself. I hate my life. Poor me. How am I self centered? I I wasn't you know. And I also thought I was pretty really smart. But I didn't, you know, I wasn't smart enough to know that if 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 me and my feelings are at the center of my thinking uh, all the time, then that's like the definition of self-centered. So it doesn't have to be a positive, uh, positive self-esteem to be self-centered, which is which was my wrong thinking about self-centeredness. It can absolutely be, you know, negative self-talk all of these other things that I was doing were self-centered. So Matt, there's been a huge change, obviously, in your life. Yeah. How did you get involved with Recovery Centers of America? And what's your current life look like? Well, I, I got, I was 
I was really lucky to um, get involved um, with RCA. I had been, I had been kind of working uh, around recovery, involved with uh, managing sober living houses, working as a tech at detoxes, doing groups at IOPs, stuff like that. And also, um, you know, right before I was working at RCA, I was I was working at, as a valet, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, that was a really fun job. My my career before, like, was in architecture and um, construction project management and all of this. This that was part of like that was part of the life that I had built that I thought I had to get back to. And every time I tried to get back to that, yeah, I didn't end up staying sober. Doing that didn't work for me. So I had to think like if if I'm going to ha- you know I'm going to try to have a career in recovery. What what's it going to look like? And I had talked to a talked to some friends who were doing kind of the same job as I do at RCA, which is a treatment advocate. Um, They work for different, different treatment centers and different treatment centers have different names for the job, but they had suggested that I kind of look into that. And one day I, I noticed on whether it was LinkedIn or one of those sites that RCA had a opening in Maine. And so I applied and I, I interviewed and I, I ended up getting the position and um, it's been awesome. It's like the fa- my favorite job I've ever had. And, and what um, does the future look like? Is it with RCA or is that a stepping stone to other ways that you want to be in this field? What are your thoughts I don't think too. I don't think too much ahead. I, I I think that if I do, I I I run the risk of uh making myself making myself a little sick. You know, yeah. I it's one of my problems is I I'll you know I'll think I'll overthink things and think ahead, and it takes me out of a state of uh, a state of gratitude um to to do that. Where I'm at right now is I'm I'm feeling very very grateful for the opportunity to work with the people that I work with and um, have the kind of mentorship and uh, support that RCA offers and also be able to get out there and take advantage of the opportunity that they gave me, which is to help people get into treatment. So it's not like I'm selling a product I don't believe in. You right. know what I mean? Selling a product. I was I thank you for bringing me back to a thought I had much earlier about when treatment centers were calling you. I never really <laughs> heard of that before and I just wondered what you think about that as a practice. Uh, well, if my mother <laughs> wanted me to go to treatment um she you know she made an impression upon whoever it was that i was someone that needed help and this person was uh you know i this person was a person like who was in recovery too who had who had gotten uh who had gotten it and wanted to wanted to help other people so their motivation was was you know pure like this is somebody that I that I still know. 
and they were they were calling me because they wanted to help me. I remember a lot of things now in my job that people have said to me when I was in treatment. Um, and I, you brought up my, you know, my mother. So one time someone said to me, they said, you know, Matt, you're not very likable. And I was, you know, I was kind of taken aback by that. It was explained that the way I was behaving wasn't, wasn't like a very likable person. I was being, I was being negative. I was bringing a lot of negativity in the community. I, I just wasn't, I wasn't being likable. And it was, you know, he's something like, I like your mom though. And what she sees when she looks at you is different from what I see. Your mom looks at you and she sees her baby. She sees an infant that she's terrified of losing. And I had never thought of it that way. And when I'm sitting across from somebody who's being obstinate, who is maybe bullying their wife for packing the wrong T-shirts to go to the treatment center or, you know, saying some reckless shit. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this person's not very likable. I can at least, you know, maybe I don't like that person in that moment, but, you know, first of all, I remember that I was just like that. And I do like their, I do like their mother. I do like their wife. I do like the person that's also sitting there with me. That's beside themselves with fear of losing this guy. So it helps me find patience. It helps me find compassion. Um, and I understand why that person said the thing that they did to me when they said it, because now I experience the same thing. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it, it makes so much sense. And I, I really love, again, the perspective of just putting yourself into the mother's shoes. Um, you know, the love that she has for her baby and the fear that she holds. And, you know, it's like, the asshole in front of you is more than just that. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the asshole in front of you is is often you're not meeting them at the best time. If 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 <laughs> if I'm meeting you in an emergency room or, you know, if in if I'm meeting you in the course of my job, I'm I'm probably not meeting you on your best day. So <laughs> Well, and I, I have can to probably say to you, Matt, in all honesty, I'm glad I never met you in <laughs> active addiction you know? yeah I've, i sucked yeah It'd be a totally different person um you just reminded me of something really funny though when the um my son was um being given an award by bob's furniture for an art contest that he entered um you know he laughs about it to this day because he came in second and there were only two entries oh but Good the, for him. the winning contestant was the daughter of the CEO of the hospital where I worked for a um, rehab within the hospital. <laughs> oh, wow. And she came up to me. There were many parents and children at the um, award ceremony. And she came up and said, um, you look familiar. And I said, I hope it's not from where I work. <laughs> yeah. 
because yeah. of what you just said, most of the people <laughs> that saw and recognized me from work had been patients there and it was a difficult thing to run into them socially. But yeah. Uh, then I noticed the landlord around her neck, you know, that identified her as the CEO of the whole gosh darn hospital. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. So like, she she got it then. She got yeah, it. Foot and mouth, <laughs> Nancy, you know. Like, oh, dear. So, Do you want to put in any plug for RCA? Um, hoping that they're, you know, more than the 10 listeners we have in season one to <laughs> liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Well, sure. I'm. <laughs> yeah. If anyone ever needs to reach out, if like if you are if you if you or a loved one knows somebody who's struggling with this and you you want some support in it, you can always uh, you can call me. Uh, I don't know if it's the best uh, how the best way to do it might be to. What do you think, Nancy? Should I give my number out on this, or should I leave it with you and you can put a link or something? You no, know, we always do both. So if you want me to okay. link it in the show notes, we can certainly do that. My assistant is great at um, putting up show notes. She can put up uh, links to Recovery Centers of America as well. Um, yeah. Well, why don't yeah? Why don't to anyone listening? Because I don't know that all the listeners go back and. Absolutely. So that's what I'll do. Like I said, if you ever need need to talk to someone, um, I'm always available. My phone is on 24-7, seven days a week. My phone number is 781-857-8564. I am a treatment advocate for Recovery Centers of America, but um, you know, I'm also a person that uh has has a history and experience in addiction and I, I got better and I just want to help people. So the conversation doesn't have to be about placing you in treatment and placing someone in treatment. It can just be about like where we're at and, and what's going on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to just be there as support for somebody. So please do give me a call. It's 781-857-8564. And so Matt, are you saying that's for family members as well? Anyone that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like I said, a family member, um, if, you know, if there's a friend that you, in your life, or if you yourself are, are struggling with uh, substance use disorder, you can call me. It does. I'm. I don't have to talk to you. Um. Just. I'm. I'm not just going to exclusively talk to addicts. I will talk to someone who has a person in their life that they want to find help for. Someone who, um, you know, doesn't know what to do. Our families don't know what to do. Our employers don't know what to do. These are conversations that people are terrified of having. And we're, as uh, drug addicts and alcoholics, when we're active, are scary people to have to confront about this stuff. So if I can be a support in that respect, you know, I, that's, that's something I want to try to do. You know, I was always taught that if someone is drowning, you do not go in 
after them, especially without a life preserver or a long tree branch or something else. Mm -hmm. And I used to talk about that in a family day at the recovery center that I worked for. And, um, you know, I knew very well, being a mother myself, that if my child was drowning, no one could keep me from going after them. And the reason why you're instructed not to do exactly that is because they are panicked. They're in a moment of desperate panic and yeah. they will claw onto you. They will drag you down with them. And I really do believe that is the experience for a lot of people with, especially parents with adult children actively at the end of their addiction, where right. either death, insanity, jail, right it's overdose or you know it's or it's turning that corner and getting into recovery but they will you know i was always trying to um share with them to let the treatment center be that life raft or stick or you know <laughs> right to get to them without going under yourself and so many people family members were at that point too of desperation themselves because they were having to watch their child like you said their baby um the threat of death being so close yeah and you always you always want to believe people especially the people that are close to you, the people that you love, you want to believe them. And it can be really hard to create boundaries and hold the line on them. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's a big part of, that's a big part of what helps um, families get better and what helps, uh, what helps people, you know, in a lot of situations stay in treatment as when, when a family is, uh, is, is holding that line and understanding that they're not going to be, you know, I'm not going to save my son. I'm not going to save my daughter. Uh, I need to, I need to step back and have some time to work on, you know, keeping myself. Okay. At this point, it's, it's gotten, it's gotten to, so far. And I have to have faith that the people who are helping he or she are going to help them and um, try to try to do, do the work for my own emotional recovery from this situation. Uh, it's really it's really one of these things where I think that uh, the impact it had that addiction and alcoholism has on families is uh overlooked and us as addicts and alcoholics in recovery who are getting better might get better faster than our loved ones get better from from this uh, so we as people who work in the field if we have the opportunity to connect with uh family members should absolutely um you know, take that and try to be as, as helpful and understanding to them as we are with the, with the, with the addict or alcoholic. And if we know of resources that are, you know, 
good for families, we can point them in that direction. RCA has really good family family meetings and programs. A lot of treatment centers do, and it's it's super important. Any final words, things that you might have been wanting to say at some point during this interview and didn't get the opportunity? No, no, I don't. I, I like I told you when we started, I hadn't thought of I hadn't put too much thought into it before the interview started. And I don't remember what I've said. Uh, so I would I'd I'd run the risk of probably repeating myself or who knows, maybe even contradicting myself because, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to risk it, Nancy. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with what I've said. Yeah. You know, you'll, you'll have the same experience I did. In fact, the very first launch was live on Facebook for liars, thieves, gluttons, and oars. And I was, relieved and pleased when I listened to it again because I had no idea what I'd said and what I didn't say and so. yeah every t every time I speak I um I finish and I wonder like uh what just came out of my mouth did it make sense because right. I don't know <laughs> well I think I it made not only a lot of sense but it's obvious that it's from the heart it's also very clear that you've created a really good life for yourself and i'm happy for your family as well because we know oh. that it's not only you know devastating to watch someone in the throes of addiction and we've lost so many people um to addiction especially especially what you said about fentanyl and you know i didn't take the time to ask that that wasn't your first run-in with having heroin cut with fentanyl but it's um killing so many people at an epidemic rate and i know is responsible for my own nephew's death in uh 2021 um which is still really disheartening and um you know, when you do stand back and and you watch and and like you said, too, there's there's so much for the family members that there's guilt. Like, what did I not see? Um, what could I have done differently? And, and and that makes so little sense to go there. It's just a way to avoid how much grief there really is when we lose wonderful people to this incredible addiction. Yeah, in um in 2016-2017 I lost one first cousin, two second cousins to this and it's really it's really hard to to kind of to kind of think about. I mean, when it when they, when these sort of things happen, you know, when my when my because it like I grew up kind of with these kids were all my age we all lived kind of close together but you know when my cousin Ashley who I was probably the closest with um died I I wasn't even I wasn't even surprised and uh it was something that you kind of when you've been around it for so so long or whatever 
it doesn't doesn't affect you probably the way it should and that's a sad thing um it's sad that we become so familiar with with losing people um to this but you know i try to uh i try to try to stay stay well and do the things that keep me in recovery so that you know my aunt who lost her daughter doesn't have to lose her nephew my mother um you know my mother is you know, feeling better about the way my life is going. My my relationships with my family are all so much better. And I it's sad that it didn't work out for them, but I have to continue doing what I'm doing because, you know, my life is way better than anything I ever imagined it could be before. And that's one of the things they say about addiction too, is it's a, a life beyond your wildest imagination. So Yeah, exactly. Thank like you. all of, oh, okay. go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Thank Matt. you, Nancy. What were you going to say before we started the thank yous back and forth? Oh, I was going to say, like, you know, there was, there was, there's, there's been a lot of really unpleasant, uh, unpleasant things about my life and a lot of regrettable situations and decisions, a lot of a lot of a lot of times where I was sad, a lot of times where I was scared and uh, a lot of just, you know, shitty losses. But all of them put me in a position to have the life that I had now. I wouldn't I wouldn't have I wouldn't have found a way of life that challenges me to continue growing, um, challenges me to create a relationship a conscious relationship with a, with something greater than myself to serve, a, to serve a purpose greater than myself. I would have, if I had never been so badly addicted to drugs and alcohol, I still would have died as selfish and self-centered as I was, but there would have been no catalyst for me to change. All of my problems created a situation where I had to change. And that's the, and in that respect, I'm grateful for my my disease. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't cut the interview before hearing that. Thank you, Matt. All right, Nancy. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery too. Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. 